0: Luke chapter, three, chapter 4, um, did I say 3? We're covering the end of 3 and 4, so technically I was correct. Um, but we're going to read from Luke 4. Our, we left off at uh, verse 20 last week, and we're picking up essentially in verse 21 uh, and going through chapter 4, verse 14, but let me read just the first 14 verses of Luke 4, and then we'll dive into it. And Jesus returned, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went through all the, the surrounding country. And He taught in all of their synagogues, being glorified by all. <laughs> Father, we ask that as we come into this Word, that You would help us this morning, help us to see Jesus through Your written revelation to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 I want to speak to you this morning on the theme, the true Son of God. The true Son of God. And I want to begin this morning with an illustration that I'm borrowing and sort of tweaking from John Piper uh, that I've used in the past. such a good illustration that really pictures for us and displays the painfulness uh, of temptation. Who is it that really knows the pain of temptation? Is it the person who gives himself into temptation? Or is it the person that resists temptation? That really knows the pain of temptation? Imagine uh, there's a pit and there are a couple men sitting around the pit and you're one of them. There are uh, cords tied around your necks and the cord go, it goes into the pit. And at the bottom of the pit are all of the temptations that you can imagine. Temptations of sex. Temptations of power. Temptations of prestige. Temptations of money. All of the temptations in the world are present and they are pulling on you and the, 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 the weight begins to increase. Five pounds of pressure around your neck. Ten pounds of pressure. The cord tightens. Fifteen pounds of pressure. Twenty pounds of pressure and your skin begins to break. In Hebrews, it says, the reason we continue to sin is because we haven't resisted to the point of blood. Yeah. Temptation is painful. And the question is will you give in to the temptation and ease that momentary pain and jump in, or will you continue to create more suffering for yourself in this moment and resist? Temptation. In this text today, in our story, we have a main character named the devil or Satan. Now, in some circles today, it sounds almost passe to talk about Satan. But Satan is as real as you and I. The Bible says that Satan is a spirit, an evil spirit that once was one of God's angels that rebelled against God, wanted the throne of God. And uh, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. It's in some time past, Satan rebelled against God and took a third of the host of heaven with him, which created these troops, if you would, that are against Jesus, against God, and against you. Satan and and, and his troops are coming after you. I'm warning you. They are coming after you. Satan wants to convince you that a quick high is better than long-term faithfulness. Satan wants to convince you that instant gratification is better than delayed gratification. Satan wants to convince you that pleasures in this world are better than hope in the next. Satan simply wants you to go to hell. Satan wants to cause you to doubt, to disbelieve. And to deny that Jesus Christ is the true Son of God. In our text, going from chapter 3, verse 21 through 414, we see two different divisions to this text. The first one is a divine testimony. If you turn back to chapter 3, and you look at verse 21, People are coming to John the Baptist, and they're being baptized. You notice, by the way, he's John the Baptist, not John the Presbyterian. Not John the Anglican. This is why we're Baptists, and Jesus was a Baptist, so Jesus went to John the Baptist. All right, just so I don't get angry emails from my Anglican friends, And my Presbyterian friends, I know many godly Presbyterians. Just kidding, okay? I was just kidding, that was a joke. Um, but he is uh, called John the Baptist nonetheless. Anyway, so Jesus comes to John for baptism. Uh, Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm part of this. I'm part of what, what John is proclaiming. I'm part of this. And so Jesus takes that sign upon himself. He's baptized. And immediately in this text, coming out of the water, in verse 22, the Holy Spirit lands on him in the body of a dove, and a voice comes from the opened heavens that booms, which... Everybody hears all of these testimonies. We don't know how many, maybe a couple hundred standing around at his baptism. And they hear this voice that says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Oh, this is a divine testimony. The Trinity, the three in one present together, confirming the identity of this man, Jesus Christ, as the true son of God. How do you know that you are your daddy's son? Montrell, how do you know that you are your father's son? Well, I know how you know. You look just like your father, right? But some of you don't know your father. How do you know? Some of you might not have known your father growing up. Maybe there was a man you thought was your father, and so you did what? You had a paternity test. Maybe you never did, but but that's an option for you. There is such a thing as a paternity to test to determine who your Father is if you don't know. Well, how do we know that God the Father is the eternal Father of the eternal Son, this one Jesus Christ? Well, we, hear, we see here a testimony that comes from the Father Himself. This is, it's not a blood testimony. Uh, 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 driven paternity test, this is driven by his own voice as he declares, This is my son, yeah. so that everybody around knows who yeah. Jesus real daddy is, and it is God the Father. He is the unique Son of God. And if He is the true and unique Son of God, that means He shares in every aspect of the Father's attributes, which means eternality and divinity. It means that Jesus has always existed as the true Son of God. Now Luke goes on, after we see this divine testimony, to show us something of Jesus' genealogy. He's going to make a point. He actually goes with Joseph's line. Now, why does he go with Joseph's line? Jesus is not blood-related to Joseph. Why does it matter to show Joseph's lineology? We see Mary's uh, descendants elsewhere, and we see that Mary comes from uh, uh, the seed of David, this, this royal line, and so in, in his blood is this right to the, to the, to the throne. But why Joseph? Well, it's pretty simple. In ancient Israel, your father, whoever's on your birth certificate, determines your rights in Israel. Meaning, Joseph is on Jesus' birth certificate. Meaning, Joseph coming from the royal line of David is to say that Jesus has a right, a legal right, to the throne of Israel. He goes on to David and then he goes beyond David. Luke goes all the way to Adam. Everybody here has a father, but Adam, it says in verse 38, a- Adam is the son of God. Everybody say, son of God. son of God. You see our theme there again? We've seen that theme at his baptism. This is my son. We see now this connection all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Luke is trying to show us something. He's trying to show us that Jesus is the true son of God. We have the divine testimony, and then as we get into chapter 4, which is where we're going to spend our focus, we see a divine test. In other words, we are going to test his sonship. It is not coincidence that as soon as Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, as soon as the voice booms from heaven, this is my son, that Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tested. Is he the true son of God? How will he withstand the test of the wilderness? Now listen, it's not that God needs proof that Jesus is the true son. We do. God is going to test Him to show not Himself that Jesus is the true Son, but to show us that Jesus is the true Son. Because listen, if Jesus is not the true Son, if Jesus falls in the wilderness, if Jesus stumbles into sin in the wilderness, if He gives in to the pain of temptation in the wilderness, then He is not the true Son. He is not qualified then to be the substitute He is not qualified to be our sacrifice. Therefore, He is not our Savior. But if Jesus is the true Son, then He is qualified to be the substitute for our sin. We need to know that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Our salvation depends on it. Is Jesus the true Son? Look at verse 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Pause. Jesus was led by who? The Spirit. Again, it is not coincidence that the Spirit is the one leading Jesus in this moment. This isn't the devil taking Jesus out. Yeah. This is God's plan for Jesus to be tested in this way. This is God's Holy Spirit that is leading Jesus to this test. to This moment of temptation by the devil. The main point of my sermon is this. Jesus' defeat of Satan displays that He is the true Son of God who we might trust. Jesus' defeat of Satan displays that Jesus is the true Son of God who can be trusted. Here's the main question I'm after this morning. How then might we defeat the devil. How might we defeat the devil's temptations in our lives? Well, there are three things we need to know from this passage in order to defeat the devil. Number one. I think the door, check the door over here. Was that a, no? right. Number one. Know that we that you are prone to fall. Know that you are prone to fall. The world over the last couple of years has shown us a reminder reminded us that uh, nobody is beyond falling. Think of the news over the last couple of years. Famous actors who we thought were these upright men end up in scandals as womanizers celebrities, comedians, exposed. Politicians who have lost their influence in society because of their moral failures. Oh, and this isn't just simply secular society. Over the last couple years, if you follow the news, you know that Christians who have led large organizations and megachurches and spoken to thousands at conferences have lost their ministries. And organizations have collapsed. And churches have closed. And conferences have ended because of their personal moral failures. If anything should humble every single one of us, it is the news of all of these failures over the last couple of years. Listen, friends, you are prone to fall into temptation. You are prone to fall. There are two themes in this text. The first theme is Adam. The second theme is Israel. First, let's look at Adam. Like I said, Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel, he stops his genealogy with David. He makes his point. Jesus has the right to be king. Luke wants to go all the way back to Adam. Why? Well, because I think Luke is trying to set us up for the next story that's about to come, and that is Jesus being tempted. Let's think about Adam. Who was Adam? Adam was the first man, correct? Correct. Adam was the representative in God's economy of the whole human race. Meaning the way God set things up is that he would have one person represent the whole. And so Adam represented all of humanity as the father of humanity. As the first human. Meaning if Adam did well, we all do well. But the flip side is true. If Adam falls, we all fall. Now, Satan came to Adam... And not multiple times. It wasn't like Adam gave in to a lifelong struggle with temptation. As far as we know from the text, they had one meeting. And it lasted maybe five seconds. Like, his first temptation. (laughs) Yo, you got a lot riding on your holiness, brother. Your first temptation? You couldn't resist once? Adam and his wife Eve, they, they sin, they, they rebel against God. And as Adam falls, the whole human race falls. Our representative head is condemned. Thus, we are all condemned. As a re- result, we are all born sinners. We're all born with this sin nature. We're born prone to sin. Now fast forward in the story to Israel. By the way, looking at this text, In verse 2, he's in the wilderness for how many days? Forty days. What does that word 40 remind you of if you know anything about biblical history? Forty years in the... Where's Jesus? Ah, we're making some connections here. Forty years in the wilderness. The wilderness wanderings. How well did Israel do during those years? Just read the book of Numbers. What you see in the book of Numbers is that the very fact they were in the wilderness for 40 years is because they weren't doing well. They could have gone straight to the promised land. Instead, they, re- they, they sin against God. Now, let me make another theological connection for you. While Israel is coming out of Egypt and in the wilderness, God calls them his son. He says, This is my son. Meaning we have this first son of God, Adam, who represents the whole. He doesn't do well. He falls. God then says, I'm going to have another son. And Israel is my son. And Israel is to display to the world God's goodness. How well do they do? They, they fail. They fail. My point at this, at this moment is that we are prone to fail. Fail. As human beings, we live in these sinful bodies and we have these sinful desires and these passions that war with our spirit, and we are prone to fall into sin. What is Satan's strategy here in the wilderness with Jesus? What does Satan do? He speaks to him, doesn't he? Satan comes to Jesus, Jesus is hungry, and Satan speaks. Now, keep in mind that the Father just spoke. I think there's some, another interesting connection going on here. I think Satan is tempting Jesus in a, in, a, in a method, in a manner that God just spoke to him. The Father. I was watching a Jesus movie. You know there's a lot of Jesus movies. I was watching one of them And I I, I sort of—I was curious. I was reading this and I was thinking, I wonder how Satan appears in the wilderness in the movie when he tempts Jesus. And I was right. He appears as a monster. So you have at Jesus' baptism in the movie. All right, at Jesus' baptism, he goes under the water, comes out, and it's this warm, wonderful voice. This is my son. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Right? And then Jesus is in the wilderness. And Satan appears like a monster. This (laughs) snaky monster with like a green face. And he's like, oh, you think you're the Son of God. (laughs) If you think you're the Son of God, then turn this stone into bread. Yo, anybody could resist that. (laughs) I mean, if, if that's how Satan came at you, Look at pornography! (laughs) Right? You hear God's voice. Be faithful to your wife. Don't be faithful to her! (laughs) Anybody could resist that! Now, how how did he sound in the wilderness? I bet you Jesus' first defeat over Satan was recognizing that this is not my Father speaking to me. As a matter of fact, he may have sounded just like the Father. If you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. Oh, Satan Satan is called an angel of light. When he comes at you, you think it's God. Nobody ever falls into sin thinking that they're following some monster. They fall into sin thinking it's the beautiful thing to do. Thinking it's the right thing to do. Thinking it's the good thing to do, it just—I I know in, in my intellect I know that it's—it's it's wrong, but it feels so right. Which means that we cannot distinguish between the voice of Satan and the voice of God based on the tone. In order to distinguish between Satan's voice and God's, we need to know the Word of God. If we're driven by what something feels like, we are going to be screwed over a hundred times. He is going to have a victory in your life. Uh, There are some sins right now that some of you don't think you will ever commit. I've I've had people say, just just the other day, somebody said to me, I would never do X, they said, I would never have an affair, I would never cheat on my wife. There, but the grace of God go I. Listen. Some people say I I, I would never. You would never catch me. Like I might, I might drink a little too much, or I might enjoy a little bit of this or that. But you would never catch me copping dope on the corner. There, but the grace of God go I. Listen. How is it that someone falls? So far, the moment they're having an affair, well, it's it's one little lie at a time. How is it that somebody ends up doing something that is completely destructive to their body and to their life? It's one little lie at a time. Satan doesn't come at you in such a way that it's going to be easy to resist. He's not going to come at you in such a way and you're like, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not me. No, he's going to come in a sneaky fashion, one lie at a time, and each step of the way, you're going to feel like this is the right thing to do. Nobody ends up having an affair without thinking in that moment that it was the right thing to do. It was good, it was right, it was beautiful. We are prone to fall. We are prone to fall. How do we resist the devil? We know the Word of God. Do you know the Word of God? Are you in the Word of God? Do you read God's Word on a daily basis? Are you studying God's Word? Or is coming to church once a week, sitting on Sunday hearing me talk about it, enough for you? Are you studying His Word? Are you getting to know it? Are you, are you challenging the things that you hear in culture against what God's Word says? Do you gather when the church gathers? Do you come to Sunday school so that you can be trained? Do you come to Wednesday night Bible studies so we can systematically walk through books of the Bible? And listen, you might say, Joel, those are optional. Like those, those things, I, I'm doing other things. You know, I'm I, I'm fine. Like I've I've got my personal relationship with the Lord. Listen. We have to be intentional and serious about this. Because if we are not students of the word, we will not be able to distinguish between the devil's lies and God's word. And some of you will go to hell thinking that you're following the voice of God. Here is the key. We've got to be able to detect the voice. We've got to be able to know God's Word. This is what Jesus does. As Jesus encounters these temptations by the devil, he's tempted with this, this, this uh, uh, temptation of provision. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which, by the way, comes straight out of the wilderness wanderings. Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil comes again at Jesus and he tempts Him with power. And Jesus there in verse 8 quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, which says, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him alone. The devil comes a third time and tempts Him with protection. And, and, and by the way, this time, Satan even uses Scripture himself to try to prove to Jesus something. He quotes, the devil quotes from Psalm 91, verses 10-12 through 12, in his temptation against Jesus. He is wily. That's old King James language for you. Wily. Jesus again quotes Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not test the Lord your God. First, know that you're prone to fall. Secondly, know Satan wants to destroy you. Know that Satan wants to destroy you. The Puritan Thomas Brooks once wrote this, Satan promises the best, but he pays the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life, and he pays with uh, with death. Satan's goal is twofold. Number one, Satan's goal is to dethrone Jesus. Satan is attempting to dethrone him. Look at verse 3 and verse 9. He's he's taunting Jesus. He's asking Jesus something. He says this, If you are the Son of God. You see our theme? He's trying to dethrone him. He's trying to prove that Jesus is not the true Son of God. Because Satan is smart. And he knows that if Jesus is in fact the true Son of God, then he is in a whole lot of trouble. Is Satan being nice? When he offers Jesus bread, is Satan concerned for Jesus' hungry belly, and he wants to just serve him and say, "Look, come, you, you, you've got all these supernatural powers. You can, you can just have some food. Like I'm concerned for you, brother. Is he concerned that?" Uh, does, for, for Jesus' glory, he wants all the nations, all the countries of the world to recognize how wonderful Jesus is. Is that his concern? Is he concerned for Jesus' safety if he jumps off this high pinnacle and he doesn't want him to get hurt? He doesn't want him to sprain his ankle? Just call for the angels? Listen, Satan doesn't want your best. Whenever temptation comes your way, Satan is not trying to be nice to you. He's not trying to help you. He's not saying, hey, I know you're struggling with this. Here is a good way to deal with it. I'm so concerned for you, brother. No, that's not Satan. He's coming at you in the right way, where you are most prone to fall, and he is coming to destroy you. Now, Satan could not destroy Jesus. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of mankind. He takes the judgment for you and I on Himself on that tree. Three days later, He rises from the dead and has victory over death in the grave. Where is your sting? Where where is your victory? Satan is defeated with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now Satan has turned his gaze on you. Satan has, I believe, turned his hatred on the church, the representatives of Jesus Christ in this world. And Satan is coming after you. In the same way that he wanted to destroy Jesus, he wants to destroy you. He wants you to doubt. He wants to deceive you. He wants to drag you to the pit of hell. Satan is not being nice. He wants your death. When we feel like we are entitled to our pride. When we feel like, like we are entitled to this grumble that is controlling us. When we feel that this little lie is just a little lie and it's just a cover up to make my life easier. When we, when we get this sense that I'm, just, I'm not going to give up the faith, I'm just going to take a break from church for a while. Family, these are the lies... These are the sins that send people to hell. This is the stuff that destruction is made of. He is not seeking your best. So thirdly, where is victory? Where is our victory? Family, number one, know you're prone to fall. Number two, know Satan wants to destroy you. And number three, know that Jesus is our victory. Jesus is our victory. The cords of temptation are around your neck. You're sitting around this pit. The pressure builds. 10 pounds of pressure. 20 pounds of pressure. 30 pounds of pressure as the cord wraps around your neck. Your friend jumps into the pit. Can't take the pain anymore. Adam jumps into the pit. He can't take the pain of temptation. There's another man, 50 pounds of pressure. 100 pounds of pressure. His skin breaks blood pouring down his body, 20 pounds of pressure, 150 pounds of pressure. This man stands resolute as a champion and as a victor as the cord of temptation breaks from his neck. Listen, Jesus stands for you and I. Who is it that knows the pain of temptation? It's Jesus. Who is it that has defeated all temptation? It's not you and I, but it is this victor, this champion, Jesus Christ. So how do we fight temptation in our own life? In other words, why is this passage here? Why are we given these verses, this story? Is this given to us just to present a model for us to get out of temptation? Meaning, when temptation comes, do these things. Quote scripture, you know, have your little pocket of verses, pull them out, find the the certain temptation. I'm currently tempted with stealing, and there's my verse for that. Uh, Thou shalt not steal. Uh, It's not working! Let's try another one. (laughs) Is this given to us just as a model? Like a to-do list? Jesus is just your example? Why is this passage given to us? It's so much more than that. Listen, Israel failed in the wilderness. If they didn't fail, they would have gone straight to the promised land. Those that sinned didn't make it to the promised land. Their kids did. Jesus, listen, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness so that all of His people can go to the promised land. Remember Adam? Remember this theme of Adam that we've seen in this text? Adam stands as our representative. Well, Jesus stands as a new representative for us. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a.k.a. Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Here Jesus is called the last Adam, the second man. Follow follow me for a second here. If Jesus is the first man, then that means that He is the representative for the whole human race. And as the first Adam, He fell. Therefore, in Adam all die. If this is true, that Jesus is the second man, that means that Jesus is creating a new human race, as it were. A whole new human race. Like there's, there's a new representative, which means there's a new human race. And as the last Adam, that means that he is the one who is representing this human race. If Adam doesn't do well, we all don't do well. If Jesus does well, what does that mean for all who are His? They all do well. Yeah. If Jesus is righteous, then all Amen. He represents are righteous. If Jesus defeated all temptation, then that means that all who are in Him are people uh, who stand as if they've never given in to a single temptation in their life, even though they're sinners. It's because they're represented by one who has the right to represent us. The Apostle Paul goes on, and he says, therefore, if any of you are in Christ, you are a new Creature, the old is passed away. And behold, all things are made new. In Adam we all die. But in Jesus, we see that He is the true Son. Continue to follow with me here. If Jesus is the true Son of God, then that means that all of the Father's inheritance goes to the Son. And if we are in the Son, then that means that all of the Father's inheritance is ours. All that is Christ's is ours. This is why it matters that Jesus is the true Son of God. I don't know if all of you are following me in this moment, because some of you aren't rejoicing. Listen, your biggest triumph over sin is not following the model of Jesus, but it's through being in Jesus. Are you tracking with me? Your, your, your biggest triumph over sin is through being in Christ. In case you're still not following me. Jesus' victory in the wilderness 2,000 years ago is our victory today in Baltimore City in the year 2019. We stand as victors, as champions in Christ. And temptation is defeated. Oh, so how do we defeat temptation? I can't forget my question. Let's get back to my question. How do we defeat temptation? We feel it wrapping around our neck. We feel the pain of temptation resisting to the point of blood. And we turn and we see our champion standing as the one who has conquered. And we cling to His feet. We cling to His feet. And there as we cling to Christ, the cord of temptation pops. And we are freed. What does it mean to cling to Jesus. Well, it means that we love him. Some years ago I was sitting with a couple and she had had an affair. And I was talking to both of them and he wanted to restore the marriage and she did not. And I was uh, seeking to stir up some passions, some new passions in her her heart for her husband. I asked her, I said when you first fell in love with your husband, what was it that you loved about him? Why did you love him? Why, what, what was it that drew you to him? Family, so many of us have forgotten our first love. What was it that drew you to Jesus? Why was he so attractive to you? We've forgotten our first love, and we've given in to the, Cords of temptation. How is it that we resist temptation? Well, we we fall in love with Jesus. We stare at Christ through worship, through gathering with His body, through intimacy, times in the Word, through prayer. We we fall in love with Jesus. If you want to be faithful to your spouse, it's not that you just come up with all of these examples and and, uh, strategies to stay away from Others that would tempt you away from your spouse, what you do is you fall more in love with your spouse. You see what I'm saying? If, if you have children and you don't want to spend all of your money on yourself and all of your, uh, spend all your money on your habits and, and your own passions, what do you do? Well, it's not that you just simply get a whole bunch of uh, locks on your bank account. What you do is you fall more in love with your kids. Uh, and and, and it, it changes your desires. If you don't want to take advantage of your friends, or your roommates that you're living with and just simply use them as, as people in your life, uh, what do you do? You, you set your affections on them and, and you, you, you get to know them and you appreciate them and you cherish them. My point is this. The way humanity works is the more we cherish someone, the more we want to do right to that someone. How is it that we stop sinning? Well, we don't stop sinning just through focusing on our sin. This is my problem with some groups and some approaches to getting over your sin where all we do is sit around and talk about our sin. No, we got to talk about Jesus. we got to focus on Jesus, not our sin. we got to fall more in love with Jesus and less in love, therefore, with our sin. We have to cherish Jesus. We have to see His feet as the feet of the true Son of God that we love and we kiss them and we hug them and we cling to them and we worship them. And as we worship Christ, we are worshiping God. Do you know Christ? Do you cling to Him? Run to Him? Find yourself in Him? What a victor He is. What a champion He is. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word. We thank You for Jesus, that He is the true Son of God that we can trust. And I pray that as we look to Christ, as we cherish Him, as we cling to Him, that we will overcome our temptations to sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.